What Happened to Misty Copsy? A story in three parts. This is part two, not a runaway. Many people in the Puyallup area were searching for Misty Copsy, all while the police were telling the public she was just another runaway. We dance round in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. The police in Puyallup still had to deal with the eccentric thorn in their side, and that thorn was Cory Bober. Cory was still obsessed with serial killers, the Green River Killer in particular. And one day, his mother told him about the missing 14-year-old girl, Misty Copsy. If you remember, in part one, we spoke about Corey's obsession and how he uncovered a pattern of girls being murdered in Puyallup, exactly two years and one month apart. And yes, I can hear you all screaming at me now. Two deaths cannot create a pattern. But now Misty Copsy was gone. During the exact month Corey had predicted, and with three girls, all taken two years and one month apart, Corey knew that he had been right all along. Next, Corey did something no one was expecting, and he contacted Diana Smith directly and offered the melancholy woman his support and his theories about the Green River Killer. Whether Diana wanted this help was irrelevant because the police had left her high and dry and even purposely told the public to cease and desist with the search for her missing daughter. Diana would accept help from wherever it materialized. Corey sat with Diana and explained his life's research and work. He laid bare all of his theories about Randy Oxeger and the Green River Killer, and he informed Diana that Misty had most likely been abducted and murdered by this man. In this moment, Diana's dreams of reuniting with her daughter, her only child, were shattered. Diana had been clinging to hope that Misty would return home However, Corey's information seemed likely, and it devastated her deep inside of her core. This did not stop Diana from wanting to uncover the truth about her daughter, and she was happy to have a comrade who seemed to be on her side for a change. Losing a child, I mean, I cannot even imagine what that would be like. It must be one of the most difficult things anyone can go through. One time while I lived in North Carolina as a small child, I got lost walking home from school, and the whole community was activated and out searching for me. I know that I was scared because I was lost, but I knew that I was okay. 
My parents, on the other hand, were scared to death and frantically searching for me. I obviously made it home safe that day, but that memory still sticks with me to this day. Diana was not as lucky as my parents, and Misty had still not been found in any way. Dead, alive, safe, injured, nothing at all. And Diana turned back to a bottle as a means to deal with the overwhelming emotions. Diana remained an ally of Corey's and his pursuit of justice against Randy Oxier. Corey contacted good old Sergeant Carver and spoke with him regarding Misty's case. But Carver continued to dismiss Misty's case as a runaway. It is funny how everyone's argument for everything seems to revolve around keeping the children safe. But when a child is actually in danger or missing, no one gives a shit. During this phone call, Carver told Corey that Misty's case had been transferred to the Pierce County Sheriff's Office, and Deputy Colburn was now leading the investigation. As Carver handed the case over, he overloaded Deputy Colburn with his own prejudicial views on the case and made all of the details reinforce his own personal point of view. What a jerk. Due to Sergeant Carver's overwhelming prejudicial views about Diana and Corey being transferred to the new agency working the case, Deputy Colbert told Corey Bober that he saw Diana Smith as a troubled alcoholic with a significant criminal history, and he saw Corey himself as a disruptive member of the public who was simply interfering with law enforcement's work. At the end of this conversation, Deputy Colburn made it clear that even if he were to find Misty's remains, he would not disclose those whereabouts to either Corey or Diana. This, of course, fueled the raging fire between Diana and Corey and the law enforcement agencies working the case. And let that sink in for one moment. The deputy in charge of finding Misty said out loud that he would not even tell her grieving mother if he found her remains. After being told to their faces that they would not be involved with nor informed about what was happening in Misty's case, Corey decided to continue his investigation on his own, and he continued to investigate the Misty Copsy case and its tie to the Green River Killer case. Corey told the police that he would take his own investigatory information to the media himself if the police did not care to involve him. This was something he had done in the past to great effect. But little did Corey know that the Puyallup Police Department was not kidding around when they told him to stay away from their case. What do we do with meddlesome individuals who refuse to go away? We find a way to extract them from our situation. And this is exactly what the Puyallup Police Department decided to do with Corey Bober. Corey was a small-time drug dealer, and he sold a little weed here and there, something that is legal recreationally in a fifth of the states in our entire country today. But it was not legal 
1993. And that was when the police decided to set up a drug bust, targeting the thorn in their sides, Corey Wober. When Corey was arrested, he faced a maximum sentence of four years in prison. But while he awaited sentencing, he kept digging into the Misty Copsy case. Corey was like a dog with a bone, and just a little jail time was not going to deter him. The next thing the Puyallup police did in their quest to silence Corey Bober was to get Diana Smith, Misty's mom, on their side. Both Sergeant Carver and Deputy Coburn met with Diana, and they attempted to convince this woman that they had cast dispersions on and cast aside in her own daughter's missing persons case that Corey Bober was the real problem, the enemy. They told Diana that Corey was negatively influencing her and his involvement was hindering the real investigation by police. After this sit-down with the police, Diana agreed to file a restraining order against Corey Bober, the only effective way to sever all ties with the man obsessed with her daughter's disappearance. Corey Bober abided by the restraining order and did not contact Diana in any way. But just a fortnight later, Diana decided to drop the restraining order against Corey. She realized that despite Corey's strange eccentricities, she knew that she needed the support that he provided. Support she did not feel coming from anyone else around her. Corey had become Diana's confidant. He listened to her anytime she needed an ear and he would sit on the phone with her for as long as she needed to talk. Corey directed Diana to support groups and other helpful organizations to help her through this harrowing time in her life. He was the only person doing these things for her in her time of need. So how bad could he actually be, Diana thought. Once Diana and Corey were back together as a team, they started work on the case again. The Green River Killer case, which had been cold for some time, was reopened, and the two murdered girls from Puyallup, Kim Delangi and Anna Chibetnoy, were now listed in the case file. This fact caused Corey Bober to feel vindicated. You see, he was correct all along, he thought, and he believed that Misty was the third in the pattern he had discovered relating to the Green River Killings in Puyallup. Police had not added Misty's name to the Green River Killer victim list, but Corey was convinced he was correct. The two women added to the Green River Killer's victim list had been discovered just off of Highway 410, near mile marker 30, and that was where Corey believed they would also discover Misty's remains. On November 28, 1992, Corey and Diana organized and executed a search party consisting of 25 volunteers. They would search the north side of Highway 410, where the previous two bodies had been located. The group spent many hours searching, but in the end, they came up with nothing. Corey, however, was not one to give up early. And throughout November, he continued to organize search parties 
who would spend the weekends scouring through the woods on the side of Highway 410, looking for any signs of the missing Misty Copsey. The first major change in the case came on December 2nd, 1993, when the Pierce County Sheriff's Office changed the status of Misty's case from runaway to missing under suspicious circumstances. This provided Diana with a sliver of hope, and it fueled the fire within Corey to solve the case himself. Corey remained convinced that Misty's remains would be found somewhere along Highway 410, because the Green River Killer always dumped his victims in groupings. Corey contacted the King County Medical Examiner's Office several times in his efforts to pinpoint the exact location where the previous two girls had been found along the highway. After pestering the office enough, they finally provided him with the exact location of where the remains had been discovered. And this discovery rocked Corey Bober. The two victims had been found on the south side of 410, not the north side. All of the search parties and all of the organized events had happened on the opposite side of the highway. No wonder they had never discovered anything during their searches. Diana's fear grew the longer Misty was gone. It had now been three months since she last saw her daughter, and Diana was growing desperate. One day, Diana ran into Reuben Schmidt at the local grocery store, and she confronted him about Misty's disappearance. Reuben's response to this situation was to run away without speaking to Diana. This exacerbated Diana's thoughts that Reuben was somehow involved. In any true crime case, especially missing person cases, things always get tough around the holidays. Holidays and family traditions seem improper during a time when your loved one is still missing. And this was the case for Diana as well. As Christmas neared, with no signs of Misty ever coming home again, Diana grappled with her emotions, and the emotions were winning the fight. Diana took a combination of alcohol mixed with antidepressants in an attempt to take her own life. Luckily, this attempt failed, and Diana woke up in the hospital. After some time recovering, Diana returned to her house and started facing the challenges in her life once again. In January of 1993, Diana made an appearance on KOMO, the local ABC affiliate. She was accompanied by Trina Brevard, Misty's best friend, and King County Detective Jim Doyen. Detective Doyen had investigated the Green River Killer and the murder of the two Puyallup girls found along Highway 410. During this broadcast, they opened the phone lines so the public could call in tips or clues for the case. One person called in and claimed that they saw Misty walking down a street called Meridian. This is the main road in Puyallup that passes by the fairgrounds. This caller said they witnessed Misty going into the nearby 7-Eleven gas station. This caller then stated that they had seen Misty around 10 p.m., making this, if true, 
the last known sighting of Misty Copsey on the night that she vanished. This woman did not give her name, and she has never come forward with information about this case again. Another interesting twist about this caller is that the television footage of this segment has been lost to time. Neither Corey, Diana, nor the station has a copy of the footage when this caller called in and gave their statement. The day after the TV interview, Detective Doyen traveled out to Highway 410 and he observed the dumping grounds of the first two girls who had been located. Detective Doyen had no jurisdiction here, so this was merely symbolic. But it made Diana feel better that someone cared enough to help. On January 10th, 1993, just four months after Misty's disappearance, the town of Puyallup was rocked by another crime that reeked of similarity to what some believed may have happened to Misty Copsey. Just five blocks from the area Misty had gone missing from, and on the same road the anonymous TB caller had claimed to have seen Misty on, a 15-year-old girl was walking down the street when she was taken. A red Camaro pulled up to the young girl as she was walking down Meridian in downtown Puyallup. The man inside of the car, Robert Leslie Hickey, then began to call out to the girl. She ignored the man and continued on her way. But then Robert began shouting graphic things at the girl, and he began asking her for sexual favors. The girl just continued walking. Robert pulled over and jumped out of his red Camaro. He forced the girl into his car and drove her to a nearby secluded area. Robert raped this girl and then drove her to a nearby ravine where he proceeded to throw her over the edge, convinced that the fall would kill the girl. This is very similar to the actions of Lawrence Singleton in the Mary Vincent case, which we covered during season one of The Secret Sits. And just like Mary Vincent, this girl was a badass survivor. The girl survived the fall down the ravine, and she later identified Robert Hickey as her attacker. He was convicted of first-degree rape, and he received a total of seven years in prison for this rape and attempted murder. Robert Hickey was never listed on the suspect list for Misty Copsey, even after this attack. Police never even interviewed him as a potential suspect. After serving five years of his sentence, he was released on parole, where he would go on to do the same thing to another woman. Corey was still focused on Misty's case, and he could not help but wonder what he was doing wrong. How had he come up with nothing in relation to Misty's disappearance. Corey knew he was on the correct path and he needed to just keep doing what he was doing. On February 7th, 1993, Corey and Diana organized another search party. This time they would be searching in the thick forest on the south side of Highway 410. 
Leading up to this search, Corey had been investigating the whereabouts of Randy Oxeger on the night of Misty's disappearance. What he found was that on the night of September 17th, Randy had been at the Puyallup Good Samaritan Hospital, which is located very close to the fairgrounds. Randy was at the hospital as moral support for his sister who was in labor. Now, to some, this might seem like an alibi. But to Corey Bober, this just meant that Randy was in striking distance of Misty on that fateful night. Corey shared information about the upcoming search with a local news reporter. And this reporter published an article that did drum up support for this new search. Corey and Diana, along with a group of friends, family, and community members, met on the south side of Highway 410 near Mile Marker 30, and they began to search. As the group scoured the forest on the side of the highway, one searcher found the most significant clue in the case so far, and it put to rest any rumors that Misty Copsey was just another runaway. Join me next week for the conclusion of this case and discover if we ever find out what happened to Misty Copsey. We dance round in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. Today's episode of The Secret Sits was researched and written by the host, John Dodson. All episodes are engineered and mixed by me, Gabriel Dodson. Check the show notes for links to all of our social media. Email us at thesecretsitspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts.